You're listening to audio from Praxis Church Kelowna. Praxis is a new church plant that exists to follow Jesus and make him known. If you're interested in finding out more or joining us in person, go to praxischurch.ca. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is Josh, the, uh, the pastor here at Praxis. Um, first time guests, visitors, big warm welcome to you. Glad that you're here with us. Um, regular attenders, as always, great to see you. We're very excited. Today is our one-year anniversary since officially launching Praxis last September, and um, God's been good. He's been good and very gracious to us as a church. There's so many great moments and signs of grace that I've been going back over in my mind um, this week in the lead-up to this, and I'm I'm excited to see what he's going to continue to do. This is a remarkable story for a young church planet to have grown the way we have, Um, New churches are always a miracle. It's always the Spirit's work. Uh, It's always a a work that he's doing. And I'm just, I'm very excited by what he's up to here. Um, Before we go any further, I want to pray just in gratitude for that as well. So, Father, I I praise you because this is the work of your hand. You are building your church. The gates of hell won't prevail against it. Um, You are uh, doing a great work here. And I, I pray this morning as we open the word up, as we enter into a new series, as we discuss um, some really heavy topics in our culture, would you give us grace? We pray for your grace to go ahead of us as we go into the year ahead. And I pray for your grace this morning as, as, um, as we spend some time now in a um, discussion and in your word. And uh, I pray it in the great name of Jesus. Amen. Well, if you come here regularly, if you've even been here once before, you know kind of our MO is that we just go line by line through books of the Bible. That's what we want to be known for. Um, That's what we've done since we began. We started in Philippians. We went to James. We moved on to Sermon on the Mount, and then we just finished 1 Timothy. We're going to, this is kind of the pattern. We believe this is God's word. Um, We're doing something a little different right now. We're beginning a series. And we're going to be in the Bible going throughout it, but we're addressing some topics. And uh, if, you, if you've seen any of our social media campaign, anything that's went along with this, some of the promotion we've had here the last weeks, we're starting a series called Doubting, uh, examining the questions that hinder belief. And you might be wondering, aren't, you, you know, aren't churches supposed to talk about faith? Why talk about doubt? I thought churches... You know, we're against doubt. Why, why do an entire series on it? And the reason we would do an entire series on doubt is because everyone, everyone either presently has some doubts or in the past has had doubts. Everyone. Many of us, though, we've been told not to talk about these things, to ignore them. You know, and the thing is, is when you ignore your doubts, they don't die. Often they grow. They get even bigger. When we fail to express and actively engage our doubts, there's, there's actually a danger. David Kinnaman, he said this, <coughs> up on the screen, Dion. Dion, if you would pop the slide up, thank you. Um, thanks, guys. <laughs> so he said this, he said, I believe unexpressed doubt is one of the most powerful destroyers of faith. And if you're like, hey, who's David Kinnaman? Who cares what he thinks? He's the CEO of a, a, a statistical research company called Barna, Barna Group, does tons of research. And so he's not just pulling this out of his rear pocket. This is actually based on stats. 
70% of students, when they enter university or college, end up walking away from their faith. If they go in with faith, 70% walk out of university without it. And, 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 you know, a few different reasons probably for this. Some of them, they're going in with doubts that don't get answered. Some, a lot of them, you go into university and you encounter some questions that maybe you've never wrestled with. And, and you don't know how to handle them. And if we're honest, there's not a lot of avenues for engaging with these questions. Doubts are leading many away from a once-held faith, but doubts are also keeping some people from faith. Some people have questions, and there's really no one or nowhere to engage these. So why do a whole series on doubt? It's because doubts need to be addressed because there isn't very many places to do this, because the church has often done a terrible job of engaging with doubt, not engaging the questions that cause people to doubt or, or hinder belief. Often what the church has proclaimed in the face of doubt is, is this, you just need to have more faith. Anyone heard that? Yeah, I have. So I came to faith in my teens, and I heard this answer a lot growing up. You didn't express your doubts because you, you, you were taught it was the antithesis of faith. Doubt was like the demonic reversal of faith, and so you needed to suffocate your doubts. You needed to stuff your doubts. You need to put them in a box, go into a closet, put them on the top shelf, and not address them. And it wasn't until Bible college that I really started to wrestle through some of these. I took these down, and, and I was looking at these, and, and honestly, it was some of the things that the church had been telling me. Hey, Jesus is going to come back next year. Worldwide revivals about to happen, all these different things. The mark of the beast is coming in two years. Once they started not happening, I started to kind of like kick the tires of this thing a little more. Look at it from a couple different angles. And it, it caused me to start to wonder, you know, is this trustworthy? And if I can't ask the question and the answer is just have more faith... Well, I, I know some Muslim kids who just conjure up faith as well. If it's just about believing in something very intently, I know people of different faiths that do this. What about the kid in Afghanistan who's growing up intently believing what he believes? Does that, does that make him right? If faith is just about working yourself up into a lather and not paying attention to anything to the contrary, began to doubt Christianity. It actually led me into Buddhism for a period. Um, Buddhism kind of accounted for this spirituality and some of the experiences that I'd had, but without some of the confining dogmas of Christianity. From there, though, I mean, lots of questions came up within that. I, I eventually kind of I moved on and was probably close to, to be like New Ageism, this belief that there's, we're spiritual beings, but we're kind of the universe makers. We can control the world around us through our thinking, which I'm not very good at. Um, <clears throat> so it led me on to this idea of what I now know is nihilism, this idea that, men maybe there's no spirituality at all. Maybe this was all delusions in our heads or just stardust colliding with stardust big walking, talking bags of biological goo with no purpose, no, we didn't come from anywhere, we're not going anywhere. Um, but the thing is, is that became incredibly depressing to live out. Um, that worldview at its core actually is impossible to live out. I mean, that's an argument for another day. 
Oh, so this led me back to some of the questions that I got into this journey of kind of deconstructing and questioning everything with. It led me back to the questions. And it was actually through engaging my doubts that I came back to Christianity. It led me back because Christianity made the most cohesive and existential sense of the data of reality. So we're doing a series on doubt for three reasons. One, everyone has doubts. Everyone has doubts. Secondly, ignored doubts are dangerous. And third, the Bible calls us to engage our doubts. And that's what I'm going to try to prove to you this morning. Um, but first off, there, there's a verse in 1 Peter 3.15. It says this. This is kind of going to be our, our charter verse for this series. It says, always be prepared to make a defense for the hope that's within you. You might have heard the word apologetics. We're putting on an apologetics event this Friday night. You'll hear more about it later. The word apologia comes from this. 1 Peter 3.15, it says, always be prepared to make a defense. That word defense is apologia, apologetics. It means to, to be able to defend what we believe. The Bible calls us to defend what we believe. So if we're going to do that, we're going to need to examine the things that cause us to doubt. We need to look at our doubts. <clears throat> We've gathered together for this series a number of questions that we're going to work through for the next two months. I think they're the top questions that hinder belief. Um, and our goal is to address these. Um, in preparation to figure out what these best questions were, we spent a number of times out on the streets asking people to fill out cards. You've seen some of those up on our social media. Um, asking them, hey, what causes you to doubt the existence of God? And I heard a number of responses. Some people would say, I, don't, I can't believe in a God who would send people to hell. I, can't, I have a hard time believing in a God who, who doesn't agree with where I land in my sexuality. Number of my, I think my favorite response on one card, a young man wrote, how can there be a God when wasabi hurts my tummy? It was, it was a funny one. Um, <laughs> we've interviewed... Uh, had hundreds of discussions, I can say that confidently. We've interviewed dozens of people on video. Some of them made it into the promo for this. Some will show probably throughout the series. But we've gathered together a collection of questions that I think um, are probably the biggest ones that we encounter and our culture deals with. And the goal is to address them head on, to show that doubt isn't a dirty word, that doubt is actually necessary for faith Questioning one's belief is actually required if we want to know that what we believe is true. So we've gathered these questions together, but I want to ask you, as we kick this series off, what are your doubts? What has caused you to doubt? Maybe now, maybe in the past. Maybe right now you're thinking, am I believing a lie? And I've been there. Wait, is this real or am I just, is this just some like big crazy dog and pony show that I get caught up in every week? If you're here and you're a Christian, what makes you question your faith? But if you're here and you're a skeptic, I want to ask you, what makes you doubt the existence of God? And we know that we have both in the room and I, and I love that. You might be thinking, how could an all-powerful God send people to hell? It might be something very practical. Why did my spouse leave? Why did my child have to die? 
Why did my business fail? It could be something different. It could be, how do we know this is actually God's word and it wasn't manipulated somewhere along the line? It could be, how could God allow evil in the universe? Bigger existential questions. How do I know Christianity is the right religion? There's a lot of them. Could I be wrong about God? Could I be wrong about Jesus? I want to encourage you to pull your doubts down off the shelf for this series and examine them. And I know for some this is going to feel sacrilegious because of the message that the church has preached for so long. Uh, Often we think faith is something that we have despite evidence. So it's just... Something we have, forget the evidence, we, we, you've got to just have faith. This is what Mormons teach. Mormons, when addressing questions, they point back to the basis for their belief as burning in the bosom is the language they use, which in, in English just means like an initial feeling that you have that caused you to come. And so they would say, you're encountering doubt, don't trust the burning in your bosom. Trust your initial experience and that feeling you felt, the flutters or the tingles or whatever you had. And if you've grown up around the church, maybe the charismatic movement, a lot of, a lot of this is the same thing that goes on there. You encounter a doubt and you go, but didn't you have that crazy experience? Weren't you slain in the spirit? Didn't you have that emotional encounter? Didn't you get a prophetic word? Didn't you give a prophetic word? That becomes the basis for our faith. But man, I can't count the number of people I've seen dejected from Christianity who grew up with that as the basis for their hope. Because eventually the emotionalism dies and, and the momentum that was carrying them and holding them in the seat stops and they go straight through the windshield. Because they weren't actually held in the car by a seatbelt of truth or reason or facts. They were held in by emotional experience. And you get to the point where you go... Jesus didn't come back again. Worldwide revival didn't happen. I don't want to show up on Sunday and see the prophet shake her head back and forth really fast anymore and get called forward to get slain in the spirit for the umpteenth time. I'm done with this. And the message is, well, just trust your experience, despite the facts. This is not what faith is, though, but this is how many inside and outside of the church think this is how they would define it. Richard Dawkins, he said this, faith is the great cop-out, the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. Faith is the belief in spite of, even perhaps because of, the lack of evidence. Sam Harris, he said this, faith is generally nothing more than the permission religious people give one another to believe things strongly without evidence. Mark Twain He said, faith is believing in what you know ain't true. Faith, for many, it's the absence, it's it's belief in the absence of evidence. But this isn't what faith is. Faith is not belief in the absence of evidence. It's a trust in the presence of evidence. Alistair McGrath hits it on the, the nail on the head. He says, faith is not belief without proof, but trust without reservations. It's a trust in a God who has shown himself worthy of that trust. Faith doesn't require that we shut our brain off. It actually requires in our day and age that we turn our brain on. So hear me say this. 
we need to critically examine the things that we put our trust in. And we should do that with our faith as well. We should do that with all things. I got a picture here of someone who didn't critically examine a chair before they sat on it and should have. Another picture, somebody got on this bicycle without checking that the handlebars were attached and it led to a catastrophic end. Just believing something is going to work out doesn't make it work out. We should critically examine it. I remember one time my wife and I were in Peru doing missions and <coughs> we were on probably... <coughs> I've been on a lot, of, a lot of bad bus trips, but this is definitely in the top two. Um, going from Lima into the Amazon, you go over three 5,000-meter um, passes from sea level in 12 hours. So you go up, and everyone throws up, and then you go down, and the brakes overheat and pop all the tires. And, I, and we do this three times. And I think we went through like 14 tires, and I don't think I'm exaggerating. Eventually, we ran out of tires, and so they did this Peruvian patch job where they put some rubber on the inside, thinking it would hold the air while we went down a mountain. And at some point, I looked at this tire and I was like, we are not getting back on this bus, Becca. That was wise. We should critically examine the things that we're putting our trust in. And, and, and this is true for our beliefs as well. In response to this commonly held, uh, or sorry, commonly held misunderstanding of what faith is, Bobby Conway, he says this, his book's great. I'll have it up on social media this week. Um, he said, Christians don't have faith without evidence. But additionally, atheists don't have faith or evidence without faith. One difference between an atheist and the Christian is that the atheist has two blind spots. He thinks Christians don't have evidence, and he doesn't think that he has faith. And it can be really hard to see when you're doubly blind. <laughs> There is great evidence for Christianity, and we're going we're gonna to get into some of that. We need to, in the midst of this, critically examine what we believe. This doesn't mean that doubt is a merit badge. And I want to say that at the beginning. It's not. Doubt's not meritorious. And the Bible actually does have some passages that um, warn about doubt. James... James speaks about this. You're here for our James series. He warns against the person who um, is doubting because they're hesitating between two positions. He actually calls this person double-minded. He describes the one who's doubting as like uh, they're being blown and tossed by the wind because doubt is a dangerous state to be in. You need to do something with it or it will do something with you. Doubt isn't neutral. By its very nature, doubt is not neutral. It's directional. It's going somewhere, and it's taking us with it unless we grab the wheel and engage it. It can be very dangerous, but it can also be very useful. St. Augustine, he actually said, doubt is, an, is another element of faith. Frederick Bucher, a great theologian, he said, doubts are the ants in the pants of faith. They keep it awake and moving. And so I want to look at doubt a little bit more closely here. Uh, there's a few different ways that we experience doubt. Um, I'm borrowing these from Bobby Conway's book, which I'm going to put up on social media. But three different ways that we experience doubt. The first is emotional doubt. 
Um, this is doubt that plays with our, our emotions. So we might go, why did that person die? Why did they leave me? Why did God allow my career to end up where it is? Why did God make me this way? Why do I have these feelings? These are things that cause us to emotionally doubt. Uh, this doubt, it arises when we, we encounter something that's hard to experientially reconcile with what we, we think we know about God or what we know about God. There's a disconnect, and it causes an emotional response. This is emotional doubt. But then there's intellectual doubt. This is doubt that... <coughs> engages our, our held logical beliefs and assumptions. And so things that we think and then that are contradictory with what the Bible says or things that the Bible says that are contradictory with what our culture says, they can cause intellectual doubt. You know, has science disproved Christianity is real? The historical record in the Bible, has that all been disproved? It's intellectual doubt. How could God be eternal? That hurts my brain. How can he be omnipresent? Nothing else is. What about the texts of the Bible that seem to contradict one another? This is intellectual doubt. Then there's a third category of doubt, which is evidential doubt. A doubt that asks the questions, how do you know? Just keeps asking that. How do you know? So how do you know the Bible is actually the word of God and wasn't kind of like mashed together by the Catholics in order to uh, control people? How do I know Jesus actually lived and died and resurrected? I think I'm too intellectual to believe that. How do I know the evidence wasn't tampered with along the way? This is evidential doubt. Uh, we experience it uh, when we're faced with contrary ideas and evidence and opinions, you know, that sometimes are just hard to believe or, or, or maybe we think there's no evidence for. We need to, with our doubt, those doubts that I asked you if you have, dissect them and see how they function what the core of them is. Now, you might come and say, well, I, my doubt is that this is actually the word of God. And you could be there because you're, you, that's an evidential doubt for you, or you could be there because it's an emotional doubt. You could be in the midst of an affair and going, I don't want this to be true because I want this thing. And it's an emotional doubt and not an evidential doubt. So we need to dissect it. We need to dissect and see what it is. Mark Twain, he said, it's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that worry me. It's the parts of the Bible that I do understand that worry me, which is, yeah, me too. <laughs> I think most of us. Again, the question, what kind of doubt are you experiencing? Which direction is that doubt taking you? It's taking you somewhere. It's either deepening your faith or it's drawing you away. And here's, here's the thing. We all probably know someone who's walked away from faith. I know a lot. <clears throat> Lots of famous people recently have been walking away from faith. If you know Marty Sampson, he was a, a worship leader for Hillsong, left the faith. And it caused many to question, hey, how could this person who led me in worshiping God for so many years suddenly turn Anyone remember DC Talk? They had that one good song in like 95 and then no others. Yeah, okay. Um, the lead singer of that, Kevin Max Smith, walked away from faith. He's not a Jesus freak anymore. <laughs> Dustin Kensrew, one of my favorite modern worship artists, walked away from faith. 
Josh Harris, author, some of you might have read, walked away from faith. He was actually attending our church in Vancouver. Then he walked away from faith. Actually, another famous person this week, I don't know if you've heard, of, heard the news of this yet. If you're listening to this on the podcast, uh, I encourage you to just pull over, or riding a bike, pull over and sit down. This is a, this is a heavy one. Uh, Britney Spears let the public know she's no longer a Christian, which is shocking, right? Because we all knew she was this good Christian girl. But it's funny, but it's, it's sad too, because the thing that she says led her away from faith was the experiences she had in her childhood. How could there be a God when that junk happened to me? What type of doubt do you have? Which direction is it taking you? Have you stuffed it? Is it sitting on a shelf? Listen, doubt is active all the time. Doubt, the word, is a verb. It's an action word. It's doing something. It's taking you one direction or another. It can be deconstructing your whole life or it can be a very useful tool. Which direction is it taking you? I want to I ask you, open your Bibles up if you have one. John 20. John 20. Many of us, we think um, the Bible doesn't address this. Again, we shouldn't bring our doubts. I want to show you something different here, a very encouraging verse. If you don't have a Bible, we have some in the back. If you don't want to go grab it, I'm going to have some verses up on the screen for you. But that Bible is our gift to you if you don't own one on your way out this morning. John 20. Let me get there. John 20, we're going to begin in verse 11. Okay, so this starts, just read it. Um, Mary stood, Jesus has just been crucified, put in the tomb, and, and Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into it, and she saw two angels and sitting where the body of Jesus had been lain. And she said, woman, they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said, they've taken my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. Look at what she's experiencing here. It's an emotional doubt. What's happened? My Lord, my friend. She's, she's grieving. Look at, read on though. Having said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing. She didn't know it was Jesus. And he, and he said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She supposed him to be the gardener. So she said, sir, if you've carried him somewhere, Please tell me where. Please tell me. She misses Jesus. She's so engulfed in her emotional doubt that she's missing him. But notice Jesus. He's there in the midst of her doubt, in the face of her voicing her doubt. Look at what he says in verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned around and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And he said to her, don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. Jesus pursues her in her emotional doubting. He cares. Sometimes, though, we're so caught up in the emotion of our doubt that we can fail to turn around and see the answer to our doubt standing right there. Read on. We're going to jump to verse 19 here. Um, Jesus so it goes on to say, On the evening 
of that day, the first day of the week, the doors were locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Pause. <coughs> the disciples are hiding. Their Messiah, the one they've been following for three and a half years, is dead, and they go hole up in a house and lock the doors. Jesus was killed. They're confused. They thought he was going to lead a revolution against Rome, and he didn't. They thought he was going to usher in political peace. He didn't. And now they're hiding. They are experiencing intellectual doubt. The way they thought of Jesus doesn't match up with Jesus in reality. And so they begin to intellectually doubt. But look at what happens at the end of verse 19. So they're hiding. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. In the midst of their intellectual doubt, God's not absent He's present. He shows up. He pursues them in their doubt. Their doubt doesn't disqualify them. He doesn't say, how dare you doubt? He comes and he addresses it. And look at what he says in verse 20. After he had said, peace be with you, he showed them his hands, his side. And then the disciples saw the Lord. They saw the Lord. He gives them evidence gives them evidence. Look at what verse 24 goes on to say, though. Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples, they, they told them what happened. We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, the, place my finger in the mark of those nails, and place my hand in his side, I will never believe. This is kind of crass. If you didn't pick up on that, it's kind of rude. But what it shows us is he's given up hope. Hey, at this point, I think Thomas thinks Jesus is a sham. He died. He's not who you said. You said you saw him back from the dead? That does not match up. I can't believe that. He's evidential doubt. He's an evidential doubt. But look at what Jesus does. Eight days later, and that's important to know. Eight days. Sometimes we're in doubt for a while. Eight days. Jesus showed up to Mary like that. Showed up to the disciples quickly thereafter. Sometimes we're in doubt for a while. But look at Jesus. Eight days later, the disciples were inside. Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand. Place it in my side. Don't disbelieve. Believe. And then Thomas answered, my Lord and my God. What I want us to see, Jesus is present in our doubt. He's not afraid of our doubt. He welcomes it. His disciples all doubted. The whole Bible is full of stories of doubters. The church is full of people who doubt. The disciples wrote down their doubts. They're telling us these stories about themselves. How many of us? We've closeted it and we've never pulled it out. <clears throat> it's doing something in there. Lots of doubters in the Bible. John the Baptist, who seemed to be probably the most fiery guy in the Bible, called the greatest man ever to live, Starts off in John, beginning of John in chapter 1, saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes the, away the sins of the world. But by the time you know, the end of the book comes along, he begins to say, Are you really the Christ? 
Are you really the Christ? He's emotionally doubting. He gets put in prison for confronting a king because of his disobedience to the word of God. Gets put in prison. He's sitting there rotting away going, what the heck? I thought I was the greatest among men. I was the one in the wilderness crying, prepare the way of the Lord. And now I'm sitting here in jail? Why is this happening? You know, and, and if we take a look at John's doubt, what we see, he, he thought Jesus was going to be a different kind of Messiah than Jesus actually was. And many here, the same thing. You've thought Jesus was going to be a different type of Messiah than he actually is. You've been told he was going to come and make you healthy. He was going to come and make you wealthy. He was coming back next year. Worldwide revival was going to happen. And like John, many are asking, are you the one? Or should we expect someone else? Some have already headed off and you've begun looking for another. Listen to Jesus' response to John. I've got it up on the screen. Jesus answers John's doubt. And he says, go and tell John what you've seen and you've heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Leopards are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. What does Jesus say? You don't need to shut your brain off and just believe, John. There's lots and lots and lots and lots of evidence to show this. Jesus doesn't say, you lack faith. He, he comforts John. There's lots of biblical doubters, and every single time we see God engaging them in their doubt and revealing himself. And again, now, doubt is not meritorious. Doubt is not a virtue, but doubt has a purpose. Doubt's not being wasted. It will either serve us or sink us. It will either diminish our faith or it will deepen our faith. If we engage it correctly, it is meant to deepen our faith. But we need to know that there's two forces at work in our doubt. Our doubt can take us two directions. And it's how we engage with our doubt that determines everything. On one side, we know that there is a spiritual enemy who seeks to tear away at our faith in God because he wants to attack and mar the character of God. Jesus tells Peter this. He says, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. The enemy prowls like a roaring lion seeking faith to devour. The Bible, if you're, if you're new to Christianity, depicts Satan as an angelic being who fell and from the beginning has been opposing God. And his principal strategy throughout the whole Bible is doubt. Actually, if you flip over to Genesis 1, what you would see is that the very first um, interaction right when Satan pops on the scene he walks up to Eve and he says <coughs> did God really say it's causing her to doubt did God really say because this is his whole MO he wants us to doubt Satan has a strategy for doubt he, he intends to tear down our faith but God has an intended purpose for our doubt as well God's not wasting it God intends doubt for a purpose. He wants to deepen our faith. And my favorite story of this, I think, is actually, it's in John as well. We find Nicodemus. Nicodemus, if you remember him, early on in John 8, he's actually part of the opposition to Jesus. Part of the opposition party. He shows up, though, one night in secret. Doesn't want people to know he's kind of checking this out. 
Some of you, maybe you're like Googling at night questions about Jesus. It's like that. But he shows up right to Jesus, and he, he, he begins to ask him questions. He's doubting. How, how could this? How could this? He starts as a doubter who's engaging his doubt. And by 11 chapters later in John 19, after Jesus has been crucified, after his disciples have tucked tail and hid in an upper room, it's Nicodemus who shows up with spices to bury Jesus. He's turned from part of the opposition party to a disciple of Jesus. And this is, the, this is the, the story that's played out over and over and over throughout history. People start out as doubters, and then they come to faith. St. Augustine, modernly, Lee Strobel. Some of you, you've read his book, Case for Christ. This investigative journalist comes in as a skeptic. Through evidence, comes to faith. This story plays out over and over and over because they were willing to engage their own doubts about their own worldview. Actually, the, a prof at Harvard, uh, Tyler Vanderweel, he said this, any educated person should, at some point, critically examine the claims for Christianity and should be able to explain why he or she does or does not believe them. We should. This is the, the pattern C.S. Lewis followed, if you're familiar with Lewis. He actually started out as a Christian, or growing up kind of loosely in a Christian family, had a terrible event happen, kind of had that emotional doubt, walked away from the faith. I believe it was at age 11, and it wasn't until much later in life he began to question his own worldview, and he began to ask critical questions of Christianity. It was because they satisfactorily answered them that he came back to faith. Questioning's not bad, actually. Questioning one's faith led to the reformation of the church, the story of Martin Luther, if you're familiar with it. Catholic priest who began to question everything. And through this questioning, engaging his doubts, he actually brought about the reformation. He pulled Christianity back from the captivity and the modified version that the Catholics had transformed it into, and he reformed the church back to match up with the biblical description of the Bible. Many people are deconstructing their faith. They're asking questions, but they're failing to reconstruct. And both need to happen. It's no good just to take something apart. You need to put it back together. I had a washing machine in my garage for way too long. I just took it apart and I just left it there. But the thing is, my clothes weren't getting clean. My garage floor was covered. It didn't help me to just take it apart. At some point, you need to put the darn thing back together. And some here, you, you're deconstructing your faith. It's a part on the floor of the garage. It's sitting there. Your questions are unanswered. The doubts are being treated like pets. Pets that you're feeding rather than vermin to exterminate. Your clothes are stinking. And it's time to start thinking through things and consider putting it all back together. Decon some, some of you have deconstructed you're questioning the foundation of your whole life and what you were taught as a kid. The call here is to also reconstruct. Deconstructing is only helpful if you proceed towards reconstruction. I love this room here. We have people from a variety of different backgrounds. There's Christians. There's people who have probably walked beyond or like what would they post-Christian or left Christianity. There's probably some skeptics. 
if you're here and, and you, you don't know if you would call yourself a follower of Christ anymore, maybe you're in the midst of deconstructing your faith and questioning everything, there's a call to action. If you're here and you wouldn't identify as a Christian, maybe you'd call yourself a, a, like a skeptic, an atheist, agnostic, if you've not examined what you believe, there's a call to action here. Maybe you are sincerely questioning what you believe. There's a call to action here. If you're here and you would call yourself a Christian, maybe you have some questions. Maybe there's questions you had years ago, questions that you've just grown okay not knowing. There's a call to action here. So I think there's, there, there's five challenges here for everyone in the room. The first is this, identify your doubts. Take them down off the shelf. Open that box and ask, what are they? They're doing something up there. They're not dying. You need to deal with them. Secondly, we need to examine our doubts. Are they emotional? Are they intellectual? Are they evidential? What is the basis of them? The third call to action is to don't doubt alone. Talk to somebody. Look at John had doubts. He sent his disciples to Jesus with them. Find some friends who will go to Jesus with you, who will help you take a look at these and go, can you help me find answers to my doubts? Don't do it alone. Fourth call to action is to just engage, engage it. Engage with it. Grab the wheel. Don't let it drive you. Drive it. People have had doubts for millennia. There is answers out there. If you need help finding resources, we'll want to help you. I can recommend good books. I could, I'm happy to grab a coffee with you. Engage this doubt. And this, the last call is very important. It's doubt towards faith. Don't sit passively asleep in the passenger side. Grab the wheel. Satan has a strategy for doubt, and it's to diminish our faith, and he wants to pull us over into hopelessness, and this is where it leads. Hopelessness. A worldview devoid of God is hopeless. I've chased those paths down. A worldview devoid of God does not provide answers for the way we live. There's no way to account for morality. You have no meaning. You have no purpose. You're going nowhere. You came from nowhere. A worldview devoid of God is not a fun worldview to live out. Satan has a strategy to steer you there. God has a design, though, as well. And he wants to deepen your faith. In this season of doubt that you might be going through, God has a purpose. The band's going to come up now and... I want to respond, um, but before we do this, I want to read to you from Psalm 23. We already read a portion of it at the beginning. I want to read some more of it because it's, I find a lot of hope here in, in these seasons when I experience doubt, when I'm low. Listen to it. So it says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. He's, it's, he's painting a picture of the Lord as a shepherd leading a sheep. We're that sheep. He's leading us. 
But then it says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Here, here's what it's saying. You're going to go through valleys. They're going to be scary. You might call them a shadow of death. There's predators on the hills waiting to pounce. That's a scary place to be if it were not for the fact that the Lord is with you. I will fear no evil. You are with me. And this, you prepare a table before me. In the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. If you're going through a season of doubt, a valley that you would call a shadow, notice the Lord is with you. He's not absent. He's not disappointed with you. He's in your doubt with you, and he has a purpose in it. And so I want to, if you're here in a Christian, draw your attention back to the shepherd who walks with you. If you're here and maybe your heart is feeling numb, the valley's worn at you, you're tired, I want to just, as we move into a time of response, call you to call out to the one who says he cares. Call out to the one who in his word says he's journeying with you. Call out to the one who has a table land prepared high green fields for you on the other side of this doubt. Let me close us in a word of prayer. Father, thank you that um, you are our good shepherd. Thank you that your word is true, that you are the one who upholds the, the universe by the word of your power and that there's nothing that can snatch us out of your hand. You are a good, faithful shepherd, and, and I thank you that you are not afraid of doubt. I pray for those who are in the room experiencing doubt and have been hiding in it. I pray that this would be, a, this series would provide a way of us on deepening our faith, anchoring more fully in the hope that you are, are the real God of the universe who cares and journeys with us. You'd come um, and, and grow us in our discipleship to you. And for some in the room, I pray that you would just make the reality of you more, more real through this series. I pray in your great name and confidence. Amen.